0: For Beyond Profit, a podcast of the ANA Center for Brand Purpose, I'm Ken Bolliou. It's a sobering fact. Life is not good for all kids. 34 million children in the U.S. alone have suffered from a traumatic event, such as poverty, violence, and illness. And these experiences can have significant consequences, from chronic health conditions to low life expectancy to early death. Fortunately, there is a deeply rooted safety net for many of these children called Life is Good Playmakers. This life-changing program supports childcare professionals and organizations throughout the US and Haiti to create safe and loving environments for kids to learn, heal, and thrive. And thanks to Playmakers, more than 1 million kids each year overcome adverse childhood experiences. My guest today is Steve Gross, founder and chief playmaker of Life is Good Playmakers. He has spent more than 30 years developing the program which works in partnership with a successful Life is Good company. Steve joins me to discuss the program in more detail. Steve, welcome to Beyond Profit.
1: Thank you, Ken. Happy to be here, brother.
0: So, Steve, first question. You know, right at the top, I had mentioned that you've been helping kids who've suffered from these traumatic experiences for quite some time. What was the defining moment that made you realize that this was your true purpose in life?
1: You know, really, a lot of the moments were, I come from a a really altruistic family, and you know, my dad lived by a philosophy that said, you know, you have no control over your birth, and you don't have much control over your death, but what you do have control over is making somebody else's journey from birth to death better because you were there to help along the way, and I knew at some point that I wanted to be involved in something that I felt like was helping, it was making a difference in the world, not so much... Me because I'm so altruistic, but I knew that that would give me meaning and fulfillment. And I remember trying to do something, you know, right out of college. Like, I was looking at starting, like, you know, driving around in a van and offering blankets and, and food to homeless people on the street. And I stopped to talk with somebody, and I'm like, huh? What? what? Thinks competence. And they're like, yeah, why would you be good at this? Because it's one thing to want to help, but what do you actually have to contribute? that would make you effective in, in helping. It's not just the desire to help, but what can you really contribute to the human family? And at that point, you know, I walked out of that meeting scratching my head like, I don't even know what my distinct competence is. And for years before that, I was coaching youth basketball, I was working at summer camps, and I realized, wow, that is my distinct competence, is engaging connecting with kids in a way that helps them to feel powerful, to feel good about who they are, to experience kind of a sense of joy and self-worth. And I said, that's what I'm going to contribute. And I think at that moment, I realized that I wanted to use my skill set, which was working with kids and doing so in a way that I thought was making a a positive difference in the world.
0: Does that conviction, Steve, you know, burn even brighter today?
1: Yeah, you know, it really does. To me, it's, it's a blessing. It's a privilege. The idea, like sometimes when I think about living a life and not, living a life where you feel like you're serving Mm -hmm. whether you feel like you're doing something to make life better for others i don't think i'd have a lot of fun in that kind of life i don't golf i don't got a ton of hobbies to me my the work that i get to do is a passion and it's an inspiring reason to get up every morning and to endure the challenges that everyone endures in their life. I think that's the biggest secret, like when you actually can do something to help somebody else, the person that you're helping the most is yourself.
0: Uh, Steve, if you could just talk a little bit about some of the effects that experiences like poverty and violence and illness have on children.
1: I mean, I think the biggest experience, you know, kind of when we look at all these things and, and it's not poverty alone that can be a traumatic experience for kids. It's that poverty sometimes kind of wipes out the safety net that some kids have and leaves them more vulnerable. For other things, it can be much more disruptive. So maybe in areas where there's a lot of poverty, maybe there's more addiction. And so being home and living in a family where there's some addiction is what the Center for Disease Control calls an adverse childhood experience. Being in a household where there is violence, being in a household where there's an incarcerated parent, being in a household where there's living in a neighborhood where there's a constant threat of violence. Kids feeling like their needs aren't going to be met. We're young children. We're really dependent on our adult caregivers to provide us a safe, stable, loving, joyful environment. And so right. when that happens, our brain gets to grow in a healthy way. But if we're in an environment where we feel like there's constant threats to our survival and that we don't have the internal resources to deal with those threats, and we don't have the support to deal with that those threats. Well, that constant state of threat and arousal is really destructive to kids' developing brain. So Bruce Perry, is a great psychologist, talks about our brains developing in use-dependent ways. So, you know, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a home where I had to use my brain to learn, to connect, to play. I was adored. I was cuddled. I was... And so my brain kind of was able to explore the world around me. But if I don't have those same experiences and instead I feel threatened all the time, I feel deprived that I need to be comforted and I'm not comforted, well, then my brain doesn't get to grow the same way. It doesn't get to grow into kind of an exploring, connecting, loving brain. Mm -hmm. Instead, it kind of grows into a surviving brain. And in the surviving brain, you know, I'm just trying to stay alive. And so the parts of my brain that's about fighting, fleeing, surviving, well, they get pretty, they're pretty activated. Mm-hmm. But The other parts of my brain, which is about learning about the world around me, singing songs and learning my ABCs and learning how to have joyful, connecting relationships, well, that part of my brain doesn't develop as well. And so I think there's very a lot of studies done that early deprivation kids growing up, with lots and lots of fear and stress and adrenaline, really impacts the healthy development of their brain. And so, all kids really—they kids don't, especially young children—don't have the internal resources to handle the challenges and stresses of life. That's right. kind of how you know, humans are. Mm-hmm. We're not born like other animals. Where all of a sudden you're alive for two hours and you're out in the world. We need to be cared for, cared for, and nurtured and loved and taught. And if that doesn't happen, or that system is disrupted, well, kids can really struggle to develop in a healthy way.
0: Is it important to note here that these types of experiences aren't just happening in, say, you know, inner cities, that they're common anywhere?
1: that can overwhelm children though we know that physical abuse and emotional abuse and neglect and living at home with an untreated mentally ill parent or substance abuse this happens everywhere in our society this doesn't just have this isn't about only social you know socio environments that are poorer. it doesn't happen just in commit doesn't happen in communities of color but disproportionately as I said before, even if these things happen pretty consistently throughout lots of communities, in poorer communities there's less access to resources and the supports the kids need in order to thrive. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a really important point, Ken. This is not something that just happens to poor kids. It's not yes. something that just happens to black and brown kids. Mm-hmm. This happens to all kids. Oh. And the adverse childhood experiences is really kind of like the more adversity you experience, the deeper the impact. And, you know, one of the things that helps to mitigate that impact is, you know, if we look at ACEs, they call them ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, those can be mitigated by positive childhood experiences. The so kids may go through a difficult time, but if they have a parent that they can talk to, if they have care providers, teachers, coaches, mentors that they feel care about them, that support them, if they are passionate about sports and or music or art and there are right. things in their life life that gives their life meaning. Well we kids can be very resilient. But right? you know people say it all the time, hey kids are resilient. And I like to say kids are resilient if kids aren't just naturally resilient. Kids are mm-hmm. resilient If they have the supports that they need. And you know, when people talk about, hey, well I didn't have anyone, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Well, nobody can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. I've never met anyone who knows, you know, I can't do that. So we all really need people in our lives to help us get through the challenges of life. And that's what we mean by playmakers. Sports, a playmaker is somebody who, when the game is on the line, you want them to have the ball. I'm a Celtics fan right now, so if the game's on the line, you know I want Kemba Walker to have the ball because he's a playmaker. Mm -hmm. He's not going to shrink from the moment. Playmakers in sports are great. But playmakers in life are much more important. So instead of a playmaker in sports who makes a pivotal difference in a game that changes the outcome of the game, a playmaker in a child's life makes a pivotal difference in that child's life that changes the outcome of their life. And those playmakers can be coaches, they can be teachers, they can be camp counselors, they can be after-school workers, they can be mentors. But adults that come into a child's life and really help that child to see goodness to build trusting loving relationships and to see opportunities in the world even if they're sometimes kind of covered up by obstacles
0: Steve, do you feel the sensitive nature of this reality that you're talking about is not talked about enough
1: yeah i think so i Mm. mean i think so it's hard to look at this stuff and i think in, in some ways some of these things are kind of invisible So we all feel very sensitive if you see a child who's battling an obvious kind of life-threatening disease. Let's say it's pediatric cancer and we see children going through chemotherapy and we can see while something is happening to this child, this child is sick and their, their health is at risk. It's visible. And it's important, I mean of course we should be helping kids who are suffering, but I think when kids are exposed to adverse childhood experiences, whether there's abuse in the home, whether there's substance abuse in the home, whether children are living really in a chaotic, overwhelming environment. That stuff is often invisible. And so you don't necessarily see their suffering. And, you know, I think sometimes what also happens is when kids have been exposed and, and to a lot of trauma and they've been victimized by lots of violence, sometimes the behavior that it from that child is difficult behavior to manage. Sometimes kids might be more aggressive. They might not be able to concentrate. So sometimes a care provider, a teacher can say, this kid is all over the place. This kid is impulsive. This kid is volatile. And and they kind of ask this question, like, what is wrong with this kid? When the real question they should be asking is, what happened to this kid? And how is this kid trying to get their needs met? I think there's, you know, most people in the world, some of the most vile things that they can imagine is somebody deliberately hurting and abusing children. And so it's such a shameful kind of hidden thing that oftentimes it remains kind of in the dark. And, you know, so I, I don't think people can fully understand how devastating this can be to a child's healthy development and I think they also don't realize that this high levels exposure to early childhood trauma it actually creates a physiological issue in the body so kids who have high levels of trauma are more likely as adults to develop heart disease they're more likely as adults to develop lung disease they're more likely to develop depression or diabetes it's not just while this kid had some emotional trauma and they're struggling emotionally Trauma is stored and felt and manifested in the body as well. And so when you say, you know, children who had high levels of trauma, 200% more likely to develop heart disease than adults. I think most adults don't, you know, most people don't realize. I mean, anyone who's listening, I mean, Nadine Burke Harris has an incredible TED talk on ACES. is much more eloquent than me in talking about trauma and adverse childhood experiences and their, their impact on kids' physical, social, emotional development. But if you, I would recommend anyone just look up Nadine Burke Harris, Head Talk, and um, I think you'll be blown away. And what Nadine points out is that this experience, this toxic experience, which is this early childhood trauma, or if that was a pesticide, or a food additive, or something that was coming out of the water, people would take action and say, this is a huge public health crisis. But because it's trauma, because it's this experience that we don't always see, it doesn't have as clear and kind of, You know, you can't pinpoint it to say, hey, this is a chemical that's found in in a fertilizer. That we are not necessarily handling this as a public health crisis, and we should be.
0: So, Steve, how is your organization helping these at-risk kids heal from what you say, you know, quote-unquote, toxic experiences? So, I think the most important thing is the
1: best predictor of how well and how resilient a child will be is the and quantity of their adult relationships. The people in their life that help to insulate them, help them to learn, to comfort them, to reassure them... You know, we all need people in our lives. And fortunately for lots of kids, there's millions of men and women who dedicate their lives to helping kids to heal and grow. You find them every day in early child care centers. You find them in boys and girls clubs and YMCA's across the country. You find them in sports leagues and mentorship programs. You find them in schools that we talk about these adults being in the life-changing relationship business. And when you're in the life-changing relationship business, actually in any business, you know, in order to be effective, but especially in the life-changing relationship business, you really need two sets of skills. One of those skills is your job skill, your professional skill. If you're an accountant, you got to know how to be an accountant. You Mm got to understand debits and credits and accounting. If you're a teacher, you have to know how to teach. You have to understand your subject matter. You have to know literacy, numeracy, if you're a social worker, you got a social worker, you have to understand clinical models and how to be a social worker. You go to school and you learn these things. But in the life-changing relationship business, your professional skill set is not enough. You have to show up every day with your most optimal human disposition. We all know this when we've been helped by anyone. It's not just the skill set we look for. Do they show up? Are they warm? Are they compassionate? Are they loving? Do they have a great smile and a great sense of humor? Are they grateful? Are they open-minded? Are they creative? We call this an optimal disposition for, for healers. And so our work is about focusing on frontline child care professionals and helping them to cultivate the optimal disposition as a healer. It's not about teaching them to be a better teacher through improved teaching skills. It's how do we help a care provider grow and sustain compassion? How do you help a care provider grow and sustain a sense of love and joy and gratitude? Because our energy and our disposition, in my opinion, is more important than our skill set. And let's just say, because I don't want to be polarizing, let's say they're both really important. Because we all known you can have a great skill set, but if your disposition isn't working well, You're going to have a tough time building relationship. On the other hand, you can have a great disposition and a lousy professional skill set. And if you're an attorney, people might go, geez, I really love this guy, but I can't believe I got to do six to 12 because I worked with this incompetent person. You need both of those things. And most organizations that focus on the professional development of care providers, most of them are focusing in on professional skill set acquisition. And our organization is really, how do we help frontline care providers? to to and sustain their optimal disposition. And at Life is Good, that's about optimism. That's about showing up. You know, if you're helping kids who've gone through a lot of difficult circumstances, optimism isn't optional. Optimism is required. And by optimism, meaning your capacity to see the goodness inherent in yourself the goodness of the people around you, the goodness in the kids that you work with, and your ability to see opportunities amidst the obstacles. Optimism is not, hey, everything's gonna be just fine, or hey, look on the bright side. Optimism is a real practical strategy to making sure that in difficult times, not blinded by the obstacles so that you miss the opportunity.
0: Is the healing process a long one? I'm assuming that every case is different, but does it tend to be take place over months and years, that sort of thing?
1: lifetime experience. I sometimes joke, I mean, life is a traumatic experience. My dad used to talk about that all the time. You know, we would talk about, I just lost my dad, you know, Ken recently, but Mm -hmm. my dad would joke, say, hey, life is a terminal illness. At some point, you realize that no matter how healthy you are, the death rate remains one per person. At some point in our lives, we realize that we're not here forever. And in some points in our lives during this journey, we lose people that we love. And we have setbacks, and we endure tragedies, and so I don't think it's kind of one of these things where you just heal and it's over. I think throughout well, kids who've had very significant trauma in their lives, they're going to have to carry that with them for the rest of their life. But that becomes part of them; it doesn't define them. And so I had a colleague a long time ago who talked about she used the analogy of having baggage. You know, people sometimes you hear people say, "Oh, gee, I have a lot of baggage yep. in my life," and she would talk about baggage and. People as therapists or clinicians or teachers think, hey, people want somebody to help them take their baggage away. And she would say, no, 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 that's my baggage. That's part of me. I don't want someone taking my bag. But instead of having to carry this heavy bag around with me all the time, maybe I can put it on wheels and I can roll it through life. Or maybe I can put it down sometimes and I can have some rest it. So I really look at it that we're constantly growing, evolving, and healing throughout our entire lives. And I don't think there's ever a point in our life that we don't need other people to help us deal with the challenges that we're going to face just being alive. The world is not divided into us and them. You know, the us, the, the them that have had trauma and the us that just live this perfect life. I think we're all part of the us. We're all there. And so, yes, I mean... Some kids will have a very difficult time feeling a sense of joy or safety or self-worth because of the severity and the exposure that they've had to very scary, overwhelming experiences. But we're all a work in progress and every child can continue to grow and heal. And I've seen so many kids, you see it all the time, you hear these stories about someone who had a horrific Experience a horrific childhood and they go on and they persevere and they do great things in the world. Well, so for every one of those people, there was someone or a group of someone in their lives that helped them to get there because nobody
0: can do it alone. Steve, obviously, with the pandemic and the social distancing rules in place now, did you have to make any changes to really keep the momentum for your organization going? Uh, did it affect fundraising? Has yeah, it been yeah, tough? You know, uh, that-
1: adapt to life so we do so many of our workshops with live workshops where we would travel we would teach we would work with people in groups of sometimes 50 to 100 people doing two-day seminars and mm-hmm. training with our playmakers and one of the most important things that we were able to do was actually to create a virtual online learning experience we're still very interactive very connecting very powerful and during the pandemic we you know we had over 1500 people complete that course and you know we've been able to stay in touch with our playmakers like everybody else on zoom on the telephone we created lots of little videos that we would call something good for kids and something good for adults and we would make sure we were publishing or um posting three or four videos a week just Giving care providers ideas of things that they could do with their kids, either the kids in in their home or the kids that they were still working with online in classrooms. So we didn't stop working, I think we innovated a lot and we're just very lucky to have such incredible technology, access to great technology. I don't know how the internet works but thank goodness for it, I can pop up my screen, (laughs) hit a link and I can be connected with people all over the country. I know not everyone has that same advantage, that same opportunity. So, you know, we try to utilize that as best we can to stay connected keep supporting our Playmaker community.
0: What are some of the ways that people can get involved in your movement?
1: I think one of the most important ways if you go on to lifeisgood.com and you click 10% for kids you can learn more about our work. We're always open to take donations and get support but I, I think one of the most important things that I would say to folks right now and I think the people that kind of lead our fundraising Michael, Steve don't say that. I think even more important than making a donation is thinking to yourself hey what am I going to do personally to cultivate my sense of optimism? How do I work hard to do my own work so I can see my value? I think we all sometimes struggle with our own insecurities. How do I grow my ability to see my own inherent goodness and to love myself? And then once you get there, hey, what can I do to really work on improving my relationships and seeing goodness in the people all around me, even the ones that challenge me? And what can I do in my life to, to actually make life better for other people and for myself? And I think that if we all kind of, it, it starts with individuals. I mean, it sounds so simplistic, but if, if everyone took responsibility for themselves and everyone said, hey, my goal right now is I want to be a more compassionate human being. I want to be more open-minded. I want to be more loving. Imagine if everyone in the world did that. Imagine what would happen if we somehow developed the human technology to grow our ability to to be open-minded, to love and be compassionate towards others, especially others who think differently than we do. How many problems would that solve? I think we actually have the resources and intelligence to basically handle every problem that humanity faces today what we need to get better is cultivating our human superpowers. And really, again, yeah, I know it sounds super simplistic and kumbaya, but learning to love and care for each other and finding creative solutions to challenges and working together. I think we're seeing that we're so interconnected. If there's one thing this pandemic has taught us, that one person getting sick on the other side of the world can bring the world to a halt. I mean, if people don't feel like we're connected, look at what's going on in the world today. Well, that same connection can happen the way people share love and people share support of each other. And so I I think one of the best ways that we can contribute to this movement is to grow our capacity to care for and love the people closest to us and also people who are outside that need, need some support and need some help. I think that's the most important thing anyone can do is to become a practicing optimist. And again, like if you want more, you know, I'm an easy email to find, steve at lifeisgood.com. If there's other ways, if you're a care provider and you want to take a Playmaker discovery and workshop, we'd love to welcome you to our community. If you'd like to make a donation, I can teach you how to do that. But really, I'd love to just have people committed to growing the good inside themselves and sharing it with others in the world.
0: So you also, Steve, have partnerships with uh, leading childcare organizations. Talk about the importance of those partnerships and driving your organization forward.
1: That's like the Intel commercial, like they don't make the computer, there's Intel inside. I think there was a DuPont commercial a long time. We don't make the glass, we make the glass stronger. Our work is to support childcare professionals who are already in the field. So we don't exist unless we're supporting other organizations. So for example, the Boys and Girls Club. They have this amazing organization and they're working and providing incredible after school programming the kids throughout the country and in some ways throughout the world. Well, our job is to support, work with those boys and girls clubs so we can help to bring out the best that their staff has to offer. And so we can't exist on our own. Our job is really, if we do our job well in a collaboration, is we help the staff that are working in child care organizations all across the country and in Haiti. We help them bring out the best in their number and resources.
0: Mm-hmm. You've said, and I'm quoting you here, light is most brilliant when contrasted with darkness. A real powerful statement. I'm hoping you can elaborate a little on that.
1: Let's just look at positivity. I mean, just use a little analogy. Let's say positivity is a light. When do you need light the most? You need it when you can't see. You need it in darkness. If you turn a flashlight on in a really dark room, well, that flashlight is brilliant. You go out in a sunny day and you turn that flashlight on, you don't even know it's on. And it's the same kind of thing with optimism and positivity. Hey, when everything's already going great, well, that positivity is nice. But we need that positivity and optimism most when it's hardest to come by. And that's when people are in great, great struggles and great, great pain. And so, you know, we always talk about optimism can be a state of mind. You wake up, you feel good, it's a beautiful day, it's sunny, it's Saturday. You're like, hey, man, I feel optimistic. And, but like all other emotions and states of mind they're fleeting. The next day you might not feel optimistic. It might be rainy or cloudy or you might just wake up on the wrong side of the bed and you're like, ah, today I don't feel optimistic. We don't want our emotions to rule us. That's optimism as a state of mind. But I like to look at optimism as a trait of character that you can have with you all the time. And to have optimism as a trait of character, you got to be able to practice optimism even if you're not feeling it. Even on those days that you wake up and yet you struggle to Get out of bed. How can you practice optimism? How do you practice love when somebody is not evoking an emotion of love? That is these concepts that are sometimes emotions. How do we grow them so that we can use them as traits of character? I know people who say, Hey, I'm great. You know, they might have a hardship happen and they look at it and they say, Hey, you know, I'm grateful for that. And they might have something really set. You know, my wife left me, but you know what? I have gratitude for that because it really taught me that some of what I was doing wrong in relationships, and it taught me that I was strong. Longer than I thought I was and it's going to prepare me to navigate difficult circumstances in the future that is gratitude and so the problem with optimism sometimes is when we need it the most is when we're really suffering and when we're really suffering it's hardest to come by and that's really where that analogy comes from that optimism is needed most in times of struggle and life is good the for-profit company has kind of proven that We're in a pandemic we have a lot of racial injustice we've been having here you know, we have very polarized country, and life is good as not just going, hey, none of this stuff is happening, and so let's just, you know, everything's puppies and kittens and ice cream cones. It's saying that, yeah, we have a lot of struggles that, that we're dealing with, but there's also beauty and goodness all around us, and we don't want to lose sight of that, especially in the service of leveraging those things to make life better for people. People will say, you know, hey, I'm not an optimist, I'm a realist, and I'll go, okay, cool, what's really going on? And they'll say, well, we got this pandemic and millions of people are infected and people are dying and there's disproportionate health care and we have racial inequality and there's no justice and all that stuff. You say, yes, that is true. That stuff is happening. But as a realist, is that the only thing that's happening? Because in addition to those things happening, i see millions of health care workers all across the world risking their lives to take care of people. I see scientists all across the world looking for vaccines and treatments. I see with their resources to educate children. I see communities coming together. Those things are happening too. So if you're going to be a realist, you've got to be able to see the whole picture. And as a practicing optimist, what I know is that when bad things are happening, our body kind of pays more attention to those things. Rich Hansen is a great psychologist that our brains are like Velcro for negative information and Teflon for positive. We pay more attention to scary, upsetting news, and so if we're not careful, we start to think that that's the only thing that's going on, and that when all we see is pain and injustice and sadness and loneliness, it doesn't bring out our creative best selves and trying to do something positive to to combat those things. And so what we need to be able to do is have a deliberate practice that, that doesn't ignore the challenges, but sees the picture clearly to see all of the goodness that's around us, all of the opportunities that's around that, mm-hmm. uh, so that we can leverage those things. And that's really, you know, I think sometimes people look at optimism as this very light and fluffy thing. You see, you're wearing a life is good t-shirt and they go, hey, aren't you paying attention? And I go, yeah, man, I'm paying attention. Life isn't easy. Life isn't perfect. But there is a lot of blessings around. And one of those blessings is that As my dad had said, we're here on this earth right now. What are we going to do with our one precious life? And what can we do to make somebody else's life better? Because we were there to help along the way. And if we get swallowed by despair and fear, it's pretty hard to be helpful to others. My favorite life is good t-shirt. I don't know if we make it anymore. It said, uh, there's no use being pessimistic. It wouldn't work anyway. And uh, I don't think pessimism or just focusing exclusively on the problems has ever served anybody well.
0: Have you always been optimistic, Steve? Has it just been part of you for as long well, as I, you know? For the most part,
1: but I, I struggle. I, you know, I want people that are listening. I struggle just like everybody else. You can be optimistic and you can still feel lousy. You can feel frustrated. You can feel angry with people. We're human beings. By being what I like to call practicing optimist, optimist is when I start feeling myself maybe being too agitated at people, focusing too much on negative stuff, I catch myself quicker and I then try to return to a place of optimism and positive. And sometimes it's harder than others. But in general, you know, I don't think that the world is divided into optimism and pessimism. I think that everyone out there wants to see goodness wants to experience goodness wants to we don't want to be miserable and yet sometimes our experiences or sometimes even the way kind of we see the world sometimes it gets in the way of us being able to see good and so i think that optimism as a practice for people can be really really beneficial
0: lastly what advice do you have for our listeners about pursuing their own passions especially in times like this a
1: couple pieces of advice one of them Right now, in this time, it's a little challenging. I like to quote a nonprofit that I've worked at called A Light that says, do the doable. Sometimes, man, we might be overwhelmed and we want to do stuff that we can't always do. And sometimes it's the little things. When we're struggling, what can you do right now to sustain your sense of well-being? Simple things. When I'm struggling, I go to basics. Do I get enough sleep? Am I getting some exercise? Am I connecting with human beings around me to get the social support that I need? Am I staying hydrated? Am I eating nutritious food? What am I doing to keep my machine strong, my body strong? And then I like to ask four questions that I think people should, not should, I don't want it to be an obligation, but could look at um, that are important. One question is, what am I going to do to bring more joy into my life? And that's a question only you can answer. Because human beings, we need joy. We need to experience a sense of pleasure and purpose. So just even thinking of that question, the second question I like to ask is, who are the people that I need to connect with? make me feel better about life and better about myself when I'm with them and then make it a point to connect with those people. Third question that I like to ask is what are the things that I need to do to stay strong and balanced? I know for me, I need to meditate. I need to focus on my breathing. I need to get some support. I I get to talk to a great counselor every week because it really set me back when I lost my dad. So knowing that you know you can ask for help and what are the things that you need to do to stay strong and balanced. And the last thing that I would say is what do I need to do to stay creative and inspired? Because I think one of the beautiful things about kids is they spend a lot of their life trying new things that inspire them. And I think as adults, sometimes we stop doing that. We start saying someone says, Hey, let's go let's let's go do some painting. Someone like I don't paint. Well, what do you mean you don't paint? It's just the narrative you tell yourself. We can change ourselves any time we want to. I don't I'm not meaning to brag about it, but you know, I used to say all the time, people are like, Hey, you wanna go skiing? I said, I don't ski. Wanna go snowboarding? I don't snowboard. At forty six years old I started snowboarding. So I think how do we continue to stay inspired and sometimes to try new things? And I think paying, giving yourself permission to pursue things that make you feel joyful, make you feel connected, make you feel strong and empowered and make you feel inspired is really important. And don't look at it as an just even thinking those things and thinking about the things in your life that you already do. And if some of them are working, commit to doing them more. If some of them aren't working, maybe commit to doing them less. But I think if you want to spread optimism in the world, well, you can't spread what you do not have and you can't pour water from an empty pitcher So we got to fill ourselves up first so that we can share ourselves with
0: others. Steve thanks so much for joining me on Beyond Profit Podcast but I would say more importantly thank you for all of the work that you do to help kids have a happier childhood.
1: Well the real heroes man and I, I know you didn't call me a hero but the real heroes out there, people that, in my opinion, there's a lot of real out there, an often overlooked group of the people that get up every day and work with kids. It is one of the most exhausting, demanding, most challenging jobs there is. And it's also kind of notorious for being a job that's undervalued and underpaid. So really, to me, being able to serve the playmakers in the world and support them, what an incredible privilege that is. And so I appreciate you for thanking me for doing that. That, but I'm so grateful that I get to do that. And I'm really thankful for you inviting me as a guest on your podcast and giving me an opportunity to share. I hope I didn't ramble too much and <laughs> to talk a lot when I get excited. And
0: the power of this work is really exciting. Terrific conversation. Thanks again. If you want to learn more about Life is Good Playmakers, be sure to visit lifeisgood.com slash kidsfoundation. That's lifeisgood.com slash kidsfoundation. Until next time, thanks for listening.